Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do great work, and you can find out more by visiting the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have a terrific guest for today's show, including Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. We'll be talking about abortion. Of course, the Supreme Court is putting that in the limelight right now, considering important cases. And Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz, will be with us as well. It is January the 26th, and on this day in 1788, Captain Arthur Phillip guided a fleet of 11 British ships carrying convicts to the colony of New South Wales, effectively founding Australia. After overcoming a period of hardship, the fledgling colony began to celebrate the anniversary of the state with great fanfare and eventually became commemorated as Australia Day. In recent times, Australia Day has become increasingly controversial as it marks uh, the start of when the continent's indigenous people were gradually dispossessed of their land as white colonization had spread across the continent. Australia, once known as New South Wales, was originally planned as a penal colony. In October 1786, the British government appointed Arthur Phillip captain of the HMS Sirius and commissioned him to establish an agricultural work camp there for British convicts. With little idea of what he could expect from the mysterious and distant land, Philip had great difficulty assembling the fleet that was supposed to make the journey. His requests for more experienced farmers to assist the penal colony were repeatedly denied, and it was both poorly funded and outfitted. Nonetheless, accompanied by a small contingent of Marines and other officers, Philip led his 1,000-strong party, for whom more than 700 were convicts around South Africa, to uh, eastern side of Australia, and all the voyage lasted eight months, claiming the deaths of some 30 men. The first years of settlement were nearly disastrous, caused with poor soil and an unfamiliar climate and workers who were ignorant of farming. Philip had great difficulty keeping the men alive. The colony was on the verge of outright starvation for several years, and the Marines start set to uh, keep order were not up to the task. Philip, who proved to be a tough but fair-minded leader, persevered by appointing convicts to positions of responsibility and oversight. Floggings and hangings, hangings were commonplace, but so was egalitarianism. As Philip said before leaving England, it's a new country and there will be no slavery and hence no slaves. Though Philip returned to England in 1792, the colony became prosperous for the, by the turn of the 19th century. Feeling a new sense of patriotism, they began, uh, began to rally around January 26th of their founding day. Uh, historian Manning Clark noted that in 1808, the men observed the anniversary of the foundation of the colony with drinking and merriment. In 1818, uh, re uh, January 26th became an official holiday marking the 30th anniversary of British settlement in Australia. As Australia became a sovereign nation, it became the national holiday known as Australia Day. Such an interesting story. Of course, uh, Georgia founded on the same premise as a penal colony. Uh, this is, we typically don't talk about sports on the show, although I love sports, but former Boston Red Sox designated hitter and first baseman David Ortiz 
Big Poppy was elected to the National Baseball Hall of Fame in his first year of eligibility. It was announced tonight or last night on MLB Network. He received 307 of the 394 votes cast by eligible members of the Baseball Writers Association of America. He's one of 37 former Red Sox to be elected to the National uh, Baseball Hall of Fame for their playing careers. He joins Pedro Martinez, Ted Williams, Carl Yastrzemski, and Wayne Boggs as the only individuals to earn election in their first year of eligibility after spending more seasons with the Red Sox than any other team. Amazing that uh, Big Poppy, he was known as Big Poppy because uh, he never remembered anybody's name, so he called everybody Poppy, and he got the nickname Big Poppy. The other thing interesting about him is that he was released uh, by the uh, Minnesota Twins, and he ended up signing as a free agent with Boston, made the team, and ended up becoming a star for years as a designated hitter. Big Poppy. A great, just really inspirational guy. He could, he, he could carry the team on his shoulders for weeks at a time. Well, a growing number of Wall Street firms and strategists are s- turning bearish on the financial markets amid sharp sell-off in stocks. Well, the stock market bears who are anticipating a correction, they're claiming victory after leading benchmark indexes have plummeted over the last week. And uh, it's so interesting right now to watch the volatility in stocks. Uh, market down a thousand, then goes back up. Yesterday, up over a couple hundred points, and then goes back down and finishes in negative territory. The volatility is amazing. Right now, we're uh, seeing the uh, futures are up about 380. So we're off to a good start. But who knows? The market could end up down a thousand. And we're talking about the Dow Jones Industrial Average. So have stocks reached bottom, or is there still a shredding room to go? We'll find out. A large number of uh, illegal aliens have been released into the United States hours after being apprehended at the southern border. Uh, Bill Malugin, Malugin, uh, who's with Fox News, pointed out illegals are largely military-aged single males, no other family members with them. Federal agents released at least four busloads of illegal aliens in Brownsville, Texas, where they were then taken to a Harlington airport. Some have ankle monitors on, Bill said. By Tuesday afternoon, Bill Malugin said at least four large military-aged males were released into the interior of the United States. Groups, I should say. Uh, Bill Peter Ducey asked Psaki about the single adult males being released into the United States, and she didn't have an answer. Well, I'm sure the specifics of what you're referring to, I'm not sure about those specifics, she said. Joe Biden's White House press secretary had no idea that military-aged males are invading the country through the southern border, but his deputy national security advisor had a lot to say about the Ukraine border. Biden's deputy national security advisor, Jonathan Finer, on Tuesday said Americans should care about Ukraine because it goes to a very fundamental principle of all nations, which uh, is our borders should be inviolate. They should be, she should be sovereignty, and it should be respected, he said. Of course, there's no sovereignty on our southern border. Uh, Biden right now is not protecting the borders. That's the one he, he's supposed to enforce the laws of the United States, our president of the United States, and he's certainly not doing that. Well, we've uh, heard a lot about the illegal election and, uh, election and what happened on November the 3rd, and there's been very little news about pr- progress on uncovering all this, but uh, here's a couple of stories. The Wisconsin Assembly voted unanimously in a voice vote in a privileged revolution, uh, resolution to move forward with Representative Rathbun's 
resolution to claim reclaim wisconsin's ten electors for u s president and vice president who are certified under fraudulent purposes the voice vote was unanimous and passed the assembly early yesterday evening the legislation now moves forward to the wisconsin rules committee and to the wisconsin senate bill seven forty three so now the resolution will land at the rules committee in the hands of Speaker Voss, a Republican. So Speaker Voss and the rest of the representatives have 10 days to answer back on whether he's going to push to the floor for a vote. Uh, uh, Representative Rathman used the rule book, used the Constitution, and was fearless. He went out there in front of everybody, stopped the session, said, I'm a legislature and a legislator, and I want to hear this because this is what constituents are asking me to do. It's not a done deal, but it's the first time in Wisconsin history that a state representative has moved to reclaim Wisconsin's 10 electoral votes. So that's Wisconsin movement right now in the Wisconsin State Senate to recall the electors uh, that uh, were approved on November the 3rd. I should actually say uh, January the 6th. A Garland favorito and a voter GA held a press conference last Thursday at 10 a.m., to discuss the lack of chain of custody documentation of the state's ballots in the drop box implementation. According to Garland and voter GA, at least 100,000 Georgia votes and ballots lack the adequate chain of custody co documents for the 2020 election. The number is likely much larger than this. Garland Favorito said uh, to the Gateway Pundit, his investigation corroborates the true the vote ballot box fraud investigation in the state of Georgia. Garland told uh, uh, that uh, he said that they still have no idea how many ballots came from drop boxes in 2020. The number has not been provided by the state. This is absolutely shocking that the number was never released. During the presentation last Thursday, voter GA chain of uh, custody team lead David Hancock discussed the group's findings. He pointed out that the presentation the state officials tampered with and deleted hours of ba ballot box video before it was turned in to investigators. Uh, uh, the spokesperson, anonymous investigator, said that there was a common tactic used to hide evidence. So uh, it's pretty clear right now that uh, th there's mischief in Georgia and it's being uncovered right now. Also, a Pennsylvania court has ruled in the case regarding the state Senate's investigation of the 2020 election. The investigation will move forward despite rhinos, Democrats, and Dominion voting machines protesting the effort. And uh, Dominion voting machines, they've really been obstreperous and uh, difficult. Uh, they've uh, tried to stop progress on uh, the uh, operation of uh, courts in every turn, and obviously they have something to hide. Hopefully this will all come to light uh, inevitably. It's going slow, but it's there's still progress. And that's the main thing I wanted you to know, that, that there is progress on these five swing states in, in investigating the election. Well, another retirement spells trouble for Pelosi. Uh, Democrat Jim Cooper uh, from Tennessee on Tuesday announced he's not going to run for re-election in the November midterms. Uh, today, I'm announcing that I will not run for re-election in Congress. After 32 years in office, he said, I'll be leaving Congress next year. I can't thank the people enough in Nashville. You back me more than almost anyone in Tennessee history. He said on Tuesday, just Tuesday, uh, two House Democrats announced they were not seeking re-election. Rhode Island Congressman Jane 
James Lavigan, and uh, last week announced he won't be running for re-election. Separately, uh, last Tuesday's Democrat Representative uh, Jerry McNerney announced he's not seeking re-election. That brings the number of uh, people not running to uh, incumbents to 29. 29 Democrats won't seek re-election in November. Although, yesterday, Nancy Pelosi herself has decided that she will run for re-election. Why? I don't know. She probably is. The party's over, Nancy. It's time to retire, but uh, she's going to keep on going. Finally, in this segment, Wyoming uh, GOP Representative Liz Cheney is closer than ever uh, to potentially losing her seat. She's one of the only Republicans of Democrat-led Special House Committee investigating the incident on Capitol Hill last January. Recent polling shows that Cheney's down double digits in her primary against Harriet Hageman, a GOP activist who is endorsed by Donald Trump. This will be so interesting to watch. She's going to stay with that committee, and she continues to uh, claim that uh, there was malfeasance on January the 6th. Well, there was. Oh, my goodness. There's so much evidence to demonstrate that this was a setup by the par- on the part of feds, the feds, the FBI. Uh, just unbelievable. But nevertheless, uh, this she's probably going to end up losing her race in Wyoming. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks in Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the t- know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Higher Senior Resources at the Golden Gate Senior Center goes a long way towards keeping seniors connected in the community and with each other. Serving all of Collier County, the Senior Center provides comprehensive information regarding resources and services that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers, empowering seniors to maintain independent and meaningful lives. Programs are offered free of charge in a safe, welcoming space and focus on fellowship, enrichment and wellness, continuing education and meeting basic needs through offerings such as daily hot lunch, health screenings, and counseling services. So whether you're looking for referrals to services or a vibrant place to make friends, enjoy community support, or learn something new, 
Collier Senior Resources at the Golden Gate Senior Center is your Collier Senior Center. To learn more about programs and services, please visit CollierSeniorResources.org. That's CollierSeniorResources.org. Or call the Senior Center directly at 239-252-4534. That's 252-3534. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. Choice Social is a refreshing social networking platform, and you can find out more and download the app from the website, choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit with Andrew Joppa. Right now we have with us Bob Levy. Bob is an author. He's also a constitutional scholar and chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Good to be with you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute. We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in Washington, D.C., and devoted to private property, free markets, securing individual rights, and limited government, C-A-T-O dot O-R-G on the web. Terrific organization, Cato.org. Thank you, Bob. So uh, right now, abortion has been in the news, and the Supreme Court has taken a look at a couple of big cases. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, especially in Mississippi and Texas, uh, some of the uh, cases. For starters, what's your view on the legal merits of uh, the court's Roe v. Wade decision? Well, I should I should start by saying that these are views are mine personally. They don't, they don't necessarily represent the views of other experts at the, at the Cato Institute. I think to, to understand the abortion issue, we have to consider two separate questions. The first is whose rights trump the rights of the mother or the fetus, and the second is who gets to decide the first question. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have an opinion about the first question. I think the standard established under Roe v. Wade is reasonable in light of the uncertain rights that are involved. But, you know, that's a policy judgment. That's not a constitutional judgment. And no doubt uh, some of the folks listening to this uh, prefer a different policy. But I, I think the from a constitutional perspective, that's the question that's most interesting to me. And that's the question of who gets to decide uh, whose rights trump. Um, a lot of Americans believe incorrectly that if Roe were overturned, abortion would be banned across the nation. And the truth is quite different. Without Roe, the rules governing abortions would be up to state legislatures and state courts. Uh, a large number of the states, maybe most, uh, would opt for an abortion regime that's probably similar to the federal rules that currently uh, exist. So isn't the, the real question, uh, when when does life begin, or when is it murder to take a, a child's life in the, in the womb? That indeed is the real question, and, and from a constitutional perspective, uh, the uh, follow-up question is, what special knowledge do nine justices on the Supreme Court have mm-hmm. to resolve that uh, question? And I would say none whatsoever. They have no more knowledge on that matter uh, than uh, other folks, uh, other Americans who uh, can make that decision using other criteria than court dictates. Uh, right. 
the more we've learned from science, I mean, the, it's pretty clear that uh, we have more and more evidence that life actually begins earlier than perhaps many people thought back when the first decision was made. But it's such an interesting discussion. So Roe was upheld in 1992, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. What are the final rules? The, state, the states can regulate pre-viability abortions, but only if the restrictions don't impose an undue burden uh, on the mother. Of course, we're babbling about what that phrase means. Post-viability, abortions can be restricted or even prohibited uh, unless it's necessary to preserve the woman's health. Uh, and in terms of where's that viability line, most experts say that the fetus is viable after about 24 weeks. But as you correctly point out, that's, uh, this is technology is rapidly shifting, so who knows what it will be done. The validity of that standard depends on this threshold question, what, when does life begin, uh, which in turn dictates whether abortion is, is murder. And that, I, uh, my argument is that this is a scientific and philosophical uh, quandary that's a classic example of a policy de determination that ought to be left up to state legislatures. And ironically, Blackman, Justice Blackman, who wrote the majority opinion in Roe, he seemed to agree with that. And this is a quote from the opinion. He said, we need not resolve the difficult question of when life begins when those trained in the respective disciplines of medicine, philosophy, and theology are unable to arrive at any conclusions. The judiciary at this point in the development of man's knowledge is not in a position to speculate as to the answer. So, you know, after he makes that very powerful point, mm -hmm. he then proceeds to do precisely what he said the court shouldn't do, and he decides in row that life begins after the first trimester or in Planned Parenthood, that it begins at the point of viability. You know, Bob, I'll point out that uh, Sotomayor just demonstrated how viable, how uh, human these justices are in their comments about uh, the vaccine and about uh, uh, COVID when she talked about the kids dying. <laughs> so, you know, the premise of, of, uh, of these decisions in many cases, just understanding the total situation in many cases, I think justices have demonstrated they don't have a full understanding of the situation. Yeah, and they're driven like all the rest of us by their own ideological leanings and their own background, their own experiences. Uh, we would hope that they would be driven by nothing more than the letter of the law, but of course the letter of the law itself, a uh, perfect example being the abortion issue, the letter of the law can be confusing. Yes, it certainly can. So it seems that liberals can be inconsistent on social issues. What about conservatives? They're both inconsistent, uh, and uh, that's especially evident when you contrast the Roe v. Wade with, if you remember this uh, sad case of Terry Schiavo, who died uh, a number of years ago uh, yeah, no, the respirator here left. in Florida after she suffered brain damage that left her in a persistent uh, vegetative state. So the, the battle was unfolding between her parents and her husband, and President Bush and Congress uh, uh, intervened, and they enacted a special bill directing the courts, the federal courts, to resolve the dispute. So here you, get, you have conservatives who are usually strong proponents of states' rights and who vigorously argue that abortion should be decided state by state. But then hypocritically, they push for federal preemption of state decisions in the Shiavo affair. And the liberals who 
ordinarily expressed outrage when these state sovereignty arguments are advanced uh, by pro-lifers uh, in the abortion battles. They, they then turn around and invoke the identical arguments to support uh, Ms. Shivo's right to, to die. So I guess it depends on which side your bread is as to how you come down on these issues. Yeah, where you stand on anything depends on where you sit around the table, right? <laughs> yeah. So, right. so aren't right to life and right to die cases fundamentally different? Well, they have important uh, similarities. The Shivo case, when does life end? I think it's just the flip side of Roe v. Wade, when does life begin? And neither decision is, in my view, is the province of the federal judiciary because the judges have no special moral authority on those matters. So the rules governing abortion and right to die, I think, are best left to the political process and to be decided by voters through their state legislatures. And that's why uh, Roe v. Wade, from a legal perspective, is, in my view, a flawed decision uh, by assuming a, a legislative role and intruding on state prerogatives the Supreme Court violated two vital tenets of our uh, constitutional structure, one being separation of powers between the legislative and judicial, judicial branches, and the second being uh, federalism, which is a system of divided uh, authority between the state and the, and the federal government. So, Bob, what outcome would you have preferred in Roe v. Wade? Well, you know, these two uh, principles, federalism and separation of powers, they're means to an end. They're not the ends themselves. And the end result of Roe is a legal regime that a lot of advocates of individual liberty, and I would include myself, find to be a permissible compromise. So essentially, the outcome in Roe and Casey, which is different rules for pre-viability and post-viability abortions, that approximates what, you know, what I might have voted for if I were a state legislature. Mm -hmm. But but that doesn't qualify Roe as good legal scholarship. It just suggests that you can accept the Roe and Casey rules, and you can still think that Roe was incorrectly uh, decided. Got the rules, in my view, roughly right, mm -hmm. even though it got the legal reasoning completely wrong. And avoided the, uh, the process, uh, uh, violated the process. Uh, as well. Indeed it did, yes. Yeah, Bob Levy, again, chairman of the Cato Institute. I'd encourage you to visit the website cato.org, C-A-T-O dot org. Bob, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you so much. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz, that and more, right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate courtyard garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean dining room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes 
includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence, French restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you part by Golf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York style theater at its very best. Also bringing you, of course, that beautiful 44,000 square foot new home in downtown Naples. You can find out more and get tickets right now by going to golfshoreplayhouse.org. We have with us Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josepha Savaz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Good morning, Bob. Let me just reinforce something I said last week. This new system of yours for communication and hookup is so much better than your previous system. I, I just wanted to reinforce that with you again. Well, thank you for saying that, Andy. I'm, I'm still struggling with trying to get balance in a number of things. I've got some new equipment, so I apologize to listeners if you're having any difficulty with uh, the new sound system, but we're working on it. So thanks for bringing that to our attention. Okay, Bob, I, as, as I've been doing for the last year or so, I guess, I start out with some good news. And uh, this is the good news, as far as I can see it, is the longevity rate of citizens in Wisconsin. From a, a very good source, I know the author of the source, and I know the, uh, the platform of uh, this, this writer was writing on, uh, both are very reliable sources. What they have reported, Bob, that of the 500,000 people who registered to vote in 1918, 500,000, 1918, 20% of those actually voted in Wisconsin in 2020. That is a, a well-documented <laughs> phenomenon, and I, I think we just have to probably acknowledge that eating cheese is, is good for you, as far as I can tell. And, and you, you, you keep in mind that voting age at the time was at least 18, if not 21, so we're talking about people that in order to a, a vote at that early age would be today 122 years of age. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the article headlines that over 100,000 people, 124 years old, vote in Wisconsin. And it's it's pretty well documented. Uh, there is no good explanation as to how that possibly could have happened, except 
except for the categorical area of voter fraud. So obviously I was being facetious about the longevity of people of in Wisconsin. Course. But uh, with this, this constant filtering into the system of, of obvious areas that document uh, fraud uh, specifically, and then if we run them all together categorically, uh, you know, this uh, at some point has to be looked at and acknowledged. And I'm optimistic that a, a Republican Congress, a controlled Congress in 2023, uh, will perhaps, perhaps being the key word, get that done. Well, yeah, it's interesting you brought that up because earlier in the show I reported that the, the Wisconsin Assembly voted unanimously to in a voice vote for a privileged revolution to uh, uh, remove the 10 votes, the electoral votes uh, from Wisconsin to change them or to remove them from President Biden. So uh, this process, it's, it's very slow, but you know what is still going on, and I think it's important for all of us to understand that, and, um, and perhaps support, you know, those that are, it takes some courage to speak out about these issues. Oh, by the way, this vote was only to bring it to the Wisconsin floor. Uh, it has nothing to do with necessarily being a final vote, but uh, we're making progress. But nevertheless, the movements are, are in those directions. And I think, as I, as I just said, if, if the Republicans have, have courage and, in fact, uh, control both houses of the, of the Congress, uh, perhaps something can be done. And, and again, I'm using that word uh, perhaps advisedly because there, there is no uh, real indication that there will be strong action taken by the Republicans, even if they gain control. But as you're indicating, Bob, I think the movement is in the right direction. Yeah. Uh, and I think that we have to look at this. Uh, dramatically so before the 2022 midterms. We don't have a lot of time left. We have to ensure that those elections are are, are, are legal, uh, absent fraud, uh, particularly the Senate races where it's far easier uh, for fraud because of the more limited number of races than the uh, than the uh, the House races where 435 uh, seats. It's difficult to uh, to uh, steal those, but for the limited number of Senate seats, that can be done. So I'm concerned about the Senate as we go into the election period of 2022, Bob. Uh, no question about it. So that's, you know, we, we started a, a discussion about education last week. I thought it was so interesting. I, I would like to just uh, premise or preface our comments and discussion about uh, Peak Hexeth has put together on Fox Nation a series on the miseducation of America going back to the early uh, 20th century. So interesting. Just if you if you belong to Fox Nation, take a look at that or, or join Fox Nation because there's some great stuff on it. But uh, uh, a lot of good information on the, the, the uh, origins of the problems that we have in education today. I haven't seen the entire series yet, but I, uh, I do go to Fox Nation and uh, the series has attracted my attention as it should anybody who's looking at one of the major problems, if not the major problem in America, which is miseducation, Bob. So uh, it's something that should be looked at. I'm, I'm not sure about the totality of the content, whether I would agree with it. I'm, I'm guessing I would. Yep. But uh, until I see it, I, I really have to uh, I have to keep that in abeyance. Absolutely. So uh, any additional thoughts on education before we move on to other topics? Yeah, I, I didn't want to invest a lot of today's time in that, but I 
started it last week, and I, I was uh, our time ran out just as I was going to make a point at the end, and it was it was about myself, and uh, I think college certainly has been uh, warped into an ideological training ground for the left. I understand that it's it's too expensive. I understand that. I I understand all the problems, but I think as we as we uh, as we uh, clean the bathwater out, we we have to make sure that we don't get rid of the baby, and the baby to me is the the essential value that a good college education should contribute. Uh, in my life, I went into uh, my college experience as a 17-year-old, totally empty. I took a course in art history. I took a course in music appreciation. Uh, I took a course in statistics, things I never as a young man would have touched on, uh, but it filled my, my intellectual silo with a lot of information. Yeah. And one of my favorite, I mentioned this fellow last week, uh, educational reformist is uh, E.D. Hirsch, and, and he pointed out this concept of intellectual capital, as he called it. Intellectual capital is the more you know, the more you can know. Mm -hmm. It's sort of a philosophy that was uh, brought about earlier on by Edwin Wilson from, uh, from Harvard, a very extreme statement where he said, to know anything, you have to know everything. Uh, and what he meant by that, obviously, is that uh, to understand any specific piece of information you get today, you must bring to that circumstance the entire context mm -hmm. in which that which that information occurred, mm -hmm. uh, and and that is what college gives to a young person going in, or should give to them in the best models. It should enable them to be to be rapid learners as their lives go on, as they have this 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 content base. Uh, that they can build on. And if they don't have that, I think it's great to suggest that people are self-taught and uh, th they can learn on their own. But there are things they won't do on their own, Bob. And I just, I mentioned, I alluded to statistics. Statistics is so, is, is so critical to understanding a modern society. And yet the average American knows absolutely nothing about statistical analysis or the ability for people to use statistics to warp the way they think. So uh, I know that's my industry, the, the, the college is my industry and I'm, I'm defending it in its best model. And I think we have to recognize that we can't throw out the educational baby with the bathwater. So I'll just add this point. You know, I think probably even today, it's more like Swiss cheese. I mean, there are going to be circumstances where you have fantastic professors who are teaching American intellectual history or teaching statistics or teaching pol political science, whatever it might be. Uh, but, you know, among those things that are being taught also, you've got the <laughs> microaggressions and all kinds of things that are uh, surrounding the education experience. So I'm sure even today there's some great opportunities on campus. But, uh, again, the whole process is being tainted, corrupted uh, by uh, indoctrination. Even even in my own life, getting back, and I, by the way, I totally agree with you uh, in what you just said, Bob, uh, but going back 60 years, I still remember Dr. Sossaman, who taught history, just incredible. I remember Dr. Heron, retired Yale professor of English, and I was just amazed at how he'd walk into a classroom and actually, with no notes, draw the coats of arms on the on the board of the English uh, ruling houses and, and would cite, in, you know, like extended passages from uh, from Shakespeare, just, just from memory, and I was just so amazed as a a 17-year-old, any human being to do this. Mm -hmm. And it was that model that I, I, I hoped to emulate. I never became a Dr. Heron, but that was the model I wanted to have. I wanted to be that person with a lot
lot of knowledge being brought into a classroom environment. And that, and you pointed it out, Bob, that at its best, uh, aside from the, the holes in the cheese, that is what college should offer a young person if it does its job well, Bob. No, no question about it. One of the hardest courses I took in college was a course called the American Intellectual History with Dr. McLaughlin was his name. He assigned 10,000 pages of reading each semester. <laughs> <laughs> was that at Brown, Bob? Yes, it was, and uh, it was one of the hardest experience I ever had. I was just toiled over that class, but I loved every second of it and learned it's, so much as a consequence. how these hard classes that make us suffer at the end of the day, and we look back on them, and we're, we're so grateful. Uh, it, this, this is a conversation I didn't want to extend this far, but an, an eighth grade teacher I had for English, one of the most wicked women I've ever known in my life. Yeah. Uh, she was just terrified. But I'll tell you, Bob, we learned English, we learned grammar, we learned syntax, we learned, we learned sentence structure because she, she just uh, made it uh, obligatory on our very humanity that we do it. So I hated her. I hated the class. Looking back on it, it was, it was a tremendous learning experience for me. Yeah, well, hopefully uh, young people uh have those experiences you know again back to swiss cheese there's important people in everyone's lives that can help change their direction positively and that can happen in college it can happen in high school or elementary school but the point is teachers can have a tremendous impact on the student if in fact they're dedicated and uh, have their ladder leaning on the right wall hey you know the uh, supreme court is considering some important affirmative action uh, legislation right now, and I think this is such an important time in American history. I wanted to get your thoughts. Yeah, the Supreme Court is uh, considering a, a race-based admission policy at Harvard and uh, University of North Carolina, as I remember. Uh, it's a an affirmative action ruling that they'll they'll, they'll come out with, and uh, uh, it's it's affirmative action. I, I wanted to talk a bit about that today because it's such a misunderstood concept in America. So let me. Let me just invest a few a few minutes in that so I can, sure. uh, for your listeners, so clarify uh, the difference between equal employment opportunity and affirmative action and the, the problems that affirmative action is still creating uh, for America today. Uh, let me just go to the middle part of the 1960s. Equal employment opportunity was, was created by law. It was every person who was best qualified for the job uh, could get the job independently of race, gender. Andy, you're breaking up. Uh, Andy, you're breaking up a little bit. I don't know if you're able to move closer to a window or something like that. I'm just uh, where I've always been, Bob. But let me let me try that. All right. Okay. Is that any better? I it know. is. That's that's better. I just I just moved away from the table a foot. Uh, okay. So um, I don't even know. Oh. What, what were we were just talking about, Bob? We were talking about the affirmative action in nineteen in the sixties. Ah, okay. In uh, equal employment opportunity, certainly no one opposed equal employment opportunity. That that seemed to be a, uh, something certainly within American values, and, and no one resisted EEO. I think it was a, a wise piece of legislation, and it it had it, its time had come. The problem, though, resulted from the fact that uh, equal employment opportunity did not. It, create the uh, equality of outcomes that they wanted. In other words, EEO did not result in a higher percentage of protected minorities being in all of the positions or the areas that uh, that was were, were desired. So in the early part of the 70s, they moved into something called uh, 
affirmative action. It was the term has been used in various ways throughout American history, but it was in the early 70s that it was used in a very specific and and legislated manner. Uh, the case that uh, opened that up in America was something called Griggs versus Duke Power. Griggs versus Duke Power, perhaps the most uh, uh, important uh, piece of uh, Supreme Court uh, ruling in the in the history of the court, although it's not alluded to very often. In Griggs versus Duke Power, there was obviously discrimination um, by Duke Power in North Carolina uh, against African Americans, and that that was totally correct. And again, uh, that was under a concept called disparate treatment. And these terms are important, so I'm just going to emphasize the concept of disparate treatment means a measured direct impact on a protected minority. In other words, you can go out, statistically look at that minority and see that that minority has been, without cause, uh, discriminated against. Mm -hmm. That was a, a certainly a, a, a good concept. But it's not the one that's used now. What they did in, uh, in 19, uh, early 1970, 1972 was the disparate treatment was not getting done what they wanted at that time. So they moved to something called disparate impact. Now, disparate impact does not concern itself with actually, dis actually discrimination. It just measures statistically the percentage in a particular population uh, of a protected minority. It doesn't even endeavor to determine whether or not any discrimination has taken place. Hmm. Merely the statistical variance is enough to create a discriminatory label. So let me just take it from that, and I hope that was clear what I said, yes, and it bring is. it into modern America. And in modern America, it is that concept of disparate impact that rules the entire process of our, of our, of our government, of our larger society. Disparate impact, again, any time there is an unequal statistical population, it is a presumption of de facto discrimination. And that has been applied across the board in, in almost every area. And even if not legally required, corporations are, and other businesses and other organizations are too terrified not to, in fact, create or impose quotas on themselves so they can avoid any kind of government uh, uh, action against them. So this has resulted in a strong quota mentality in, uh, in American organization and institutional life because the disparate impact process is, is so difficult to avoid the charge if you have any statistical variance that is negative towards protected minorities. That was a long, long statement yeah, I just made. I hope that was clear. Very clear, but just underscores the importance of the Constitution. I think it's the preamble, or I think it's the Declaration of Independence, the pursuit of happiness. And uh, that should be protected. Everybody should have an equal right for, op for opportunities, but not for outcomes. Constitution doesn't say everybody shall be happy, and we're going to make sure that happens. <laughs> the Constitution, well, everybody should be able to impact. Disparate impact presumes there should be equity of outcomes, and where there isn't, again, there is a legal violation in place, Bob. So uh, this is what we're looking at, and um, I'm optimistic these affirmative action type cases. Uh, consistently, uh, fairly consistently, appear before the Supreme Court, and I'm hoping at some point they just don't deal with the specific of a particular legal circumstance they're dealing with, but move into broader, uh, broader statements about affirmative action itself. Right. Uh, we need uh, affirmative action is probably one of the worst things that ever happened to the United States. And uh, we any kind of sense about this about affirmative action should be done away with, in my opinion. Again, we're back to the the uh, 
the, the uh, mandate of the Constitution, which is to provide equal opportunity for everyone. We're not going to discriminate in terms of uh, people and their outcomes. And that's, <laughs> that's got really nothing to do with it and uh, really helps us get back to the Constitution. We do away with this affirmative action nonsense. Just to carry this a step further, I, had had, I, I might have mentioned this previously on the show, a discussion, an argument with a, a friend of mine as it pertained to affirmative action. I, I suggested that you know a lot of uh, people on the right, a lot of conservatives such as myself, would perhaps, perhaps being the defining word here, would perhaps support economic affirmative action. In other words, not racial, not gender-based, but if someone is in, in need of assistance, a hand up, perhaps we could debate whether or not that should be in place. It seemed inherently inappropriate that the son of an African-American millionaire should precedent precedence over the son of a West Virginia miner in terms of the government's actions. Well, and I, I will say this, that there's certainly uh, everybody has an opportunity to help a neighbor somebody who is in need, and the whole sense of charity. That's where ch charity comes from. To get the government involved in the whole process is a matter of extraction from private individuals with no sense of charity, no sense of being able, feeling good about helping the little guy, helping somebody who's in, in trouble. So uh, the, the fact that the people need help at, at times, it's not the government's role to do that. Absolutely true, and I hope my neighbors feel exactly that way, Bob. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, for, for, for me as well. So um, shall we move on to what, the, what's happening with COVID? Uh, yeah. I, uh, anything else you'd like to uh, ask me about the affirmative action circumstance, or did we, we did I pretty much cover that in terms of what I wanted to say? And I, I, I'm not trying to provoke you to ask me a question, but is there anything that you think is, is left unsaid? No, I think I think you've covered it pretty darn well, uh, Andy. And uh, uh, I think what the, the message really for our listeners is that uh, we're really rooting for the Supreme Court to make good decisions with regard to affirmative action. There's uh, one case, uh, Asians against uh, Harvard for admission process and uh, uh necessarily uh, leaving Asians out of the equation in, in terms of uh, admission into Harvard. That's such an interesting case, and I just really am pulling for, for uh, the people, the plaintiffs, to, to be victorious in this case because this is a, would be a big, big uh, loss for those who support affirmative action. You know, it's it's almost a, uh, a a proven, although it's it's more alluded to than proven, is that the entire California higher education system could be populated entirely by Asian students if, in fact, their credentials coming in with the sole criteria. Yeah. That is the quality of the Asian students coming in and the numbers they represent in the, in the California educational marketplace. Bob. Absolutely. So let's move to COVID uh, and uh, some of the decisions that are being made right now. I don't know if you had an opportunity to see the rally in Washington, D.C. on, I think it was Sunday or Saturday uh, with regard to COVID. And uh, then Ron Johnson's fantastic panel that he conducted with regard to COVID-19. Yeah, Ron Johnson is certainly coming up big in this. I think he was debating whether he should even run again, but uh, I think he's seen that his presence is necessary in America's current battles. And right. Yeah. Um. I you know I followed some of the the rally for the uh, the anti I guess it was an anti-vax rally, perhaps anti-mask rally, uh, and I I think certainly you can see the the, the, the popular opinion is is shifting away from uh, this fanaticism. There's certainly there's a, a residual fanaticism. You know we we know 
that uh, since the start of the, the COVID uh, uh, process, 40% of nearly 40% of all small businesses uh, have, have closed and are not reopening. There's been a 50% increase in attempted suicide by, uh, by teens. The, yeah. There's a record setting rise in drug overdoses. I mean, that's just the, the short list of some of the problems that we've experienced during this uh, excessive process uh, in, in fighting, resisting, politicizing, however you want to position it, Bob, uh, the COVID-19 COVID, uh, process. If we look at some of the statistics coming out right now, it seems irrefutable that, uh, that for, let me just take Israel as the, as the example. Israel, to make sure it could protect itself, its armies could defend itself in the case of a uh, of a uh, invasion, uh, went out of their way to ensure full vaccination, both doses, boosters, as much as they could get into every citizen uh, of Israel. And yet, yet the highest rate right now per capita is in Israel. Right. So, you know, the statement could be made well, vaccines are not protecting them. The recent studies, and I, I think you probably have read this, Bob, but it's something that should be part of our awareness. It seems that not only do these vaccines not protect, but they actually may make you more vulnerable right. to subsequent cases of COVID, including Omicron, and it makes the cases more serious. So with all of that information coming in, being deeply documented, that the United States is sticking by these absurd, rigid policies that everywhere else in the world where they've been tried have resulted in just the opposite outcome, uh, is I think the documentation, Bob, that this is a political process and not a medical process that we're experiencing in America. I, I agree with that, and I, I think it, there's a lot of corruption. I think the CDC, uh, these, uh, the FDA, it's all been politicized, and uh, right now it, through Dr. Fauci getting these messages that are very tainted. And uh, just listening to some of the testimony from frontline doctors listening to the testimony from nurses and listen to their fears and what they're experiencing in hospitals and in healthcare. It's really scary what's going on right now. So, you, you know, the, the Hippocratic Oath is, what well, you know, do no harm. But quite frankly, I'm concerned that because of the political nature of what's going on, there's a lot of harm being done. There's a lot of harm being done, and I know it's a commonly used uh, warping of the phrase, but I think it's more the hypocritical at this point, Bob. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I just was reading a story. It's not fully documented, but uh, it seems to have legs, which is that a person in dire need of an organ transplant has been denied that transplant right. because they were not vaccinated. Now, that story seems to be true. It looks like it has multiple sources of documentation. If we start to get into more and more of creating uh, this, uh, this discriminated against population, those that are not vaccinated or even in some cases have not received their booster, uh, I think we're, we're uh, in, in the long run looking at some very serious troubles, not just because of the, uh, the residual problems, as I mentioned before, but because these things may, in fact, be creating a, a greater potential for uh, the, the viral impact and the intensity of that viral impact, Bob. No question about it. So I'm, I, there's actually, uh, I, I sent out yesterday a link to the entire five-hour experience of uh, the testimony that occurred in Ron Johnson's uh, committal and pa panel uh, yesterday or on this weekend. Now there's a 40-minute, a I'm going to call it a precy or, a you know, a, a summary of the best high points of, of that. I'm going to be sending it out today. 
with uh, my newsletter as well. So if you'd like to receive a copy of it, you could send me an email at Bob Hart. I, I certainly would. I, I'd love to see it. I try to keep up with everything, as you know, but certainly there's, there's too much to keep up with for any one person. So I'm counting on uh, my friends and my allies to uh, to keep me informed at this point, Bob. Absolutely. Uh, before I let you go, Andy, let's talk a little bit about what's happening with regard to Ukraine. Oh, gosh, that, that is such an incredibly complex situation. Uh, let, let me just start out by, by saying, yes, there is an, a, 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 uh, a commitment that the United States and uh, uh, England have made, UK have made, uh, to defend Ukraine, an agreement made in 1994 that Ukraine would give up after the breakup of the Soviet Union, Ukraine would give up their nuclear arsenal if they would be, if their sovereignty would be protected. Now, uh, that wasn't a treaty. It has no legally binding implication for the United States, but it is something that can't be ignored as part of a of a total decision-making package. I'm not saying it it binds us into uh, serious military action, but I'm saying it is certainly one consideration. Uh, if we look at the uh, the, the current situation. Um, it's, I believe if we take the context of what's going on, I don't think we can remove from this the rhetoric that has been used in America uh, since late 2015 and President Trump coming into the American political model, uh, the, the demonization of Putin, the demonization of Russia. Uh, so, again, I'm not suggesting that is the, the bottom line either. I, I am just suggesting that I think the, uh, the responses now are, to a certain extent, a derivative of this demonization of Russia and, and Putin over the last five-year period or six-year period, Bob. Um, in terms of the circumstance itself, uh, I personally see that Ukraine is within the Russian sphere of influence. I know that's not a term that has uh, any particular binding implication. And yet, if we look at the Western Hemisphere, I think the United States also has what we would consider it our sphere of influence. We exercise that in the challenge to the uh, the Soviet missiles in Cuba uh, in the in the early 60s. And I think it is part of the American mindset. I think it's also part of the Russian mindset. Uh, if we're if we were going to act on our commitment in 1994, uh, then we should have uh, acted uh, as Russia moved in unabatedly into Crimea during the Obama administration. And yet nothing was said or done at, at that point. Uh, my position, Bob, is that um, Ukraine should be declared to be a neutral state. Now, I know this point has been made by others. It's the one I favor. A neutral state means it is not under the sphere of influence of Russia, and it is not and would not be considered part of NATO. No military alliances with, uh, with the Western powers. Uh, Ukraine would be a buffer entirely as Russia always wanted it between itself and, and the Western Western. I, my estimation, the nations are a far greater threat to Russia at this point than Russia is to those Western nations. And that's that's obviously just my personal point of view, Bob. Well, and thank you for that, Andy. You know, what I'm hearing, too, is that uh, in Ukraine, they're saying, hey, <laughs> when we say we're going to take our diplomats out, they say, hey, cool your heels a little bit. You're overreacting. <laughs> so <laughs> the, the folks at the Ukraine are, are basically uh, are, uh, not as concerned as we seem to be about what's happening on the border. It's all so interesting. Andy, I always appreciate 
your commentary here on the show. It's just uh, so interesting. And again, we're not necessarily talking about politics. We're happening. We're talking about culture, which leads to all things, including politics. Really appreciate your commentary. Thank you so much for joining us. Culture is everything, Bob. I'll talk to you soon. It's all right. Thank you, Andy. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. We've got great guests lined up for tomorrow, including Michael Cannon, who is the Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Keith Law is the co-founder of the Florida Citizens Alliance. He'll be joining us. Seton Motley, the founder and president of Less Government, and the former mayor of Naples, Bill Barnett, will be with us as well. Always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. Bob Harden at Hotmail.com. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. Oh.